The America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean has partnered with the National Park Foundation to help you find your happy place. And with more than 400 national parks, there's a good chance you'll find one close to home. Discover your perfect day in a park at findyourpark.com. go down to the seas again to the lonely sea and the sky and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by and the wheels kick and the wind's song and the white sails shaking and a grey mist on the sea's face and a grey dawn breaking I must go down to the seas again for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls crying. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the whale's way where the wind's like a whetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover and quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. That's John Maysfield reading his famous poem, Sea Fever. When we think of America's national parks, we often don't think of the oceans or the Gulf of Mexico, but along our shores are some of the most incredible places our country has to offer. My favorite among them is made up of seven barrier islands along the southern coast that parallel the mainland, protecting nature and mankind as they form a damper against ocean storms. They're teeming with life, scurrying ghost crab, majestic osprey, and loggerhead sea turtles facing their one in 1,000 survival odds. But humans have made their mark on these places too and history is a big part of any visit to these islands on the Gulf Shore. One particular historic site, on the end of Florida's Santa Rosa Island, played its part in our nation's great internal struggle. I'm Jason Epperson, and on this episode of America's National Parks, the guardian of the Gulf, Fort Pickens, part of the Gulf Islands National Seashore. During the War of 1812, the United States learned that its coastline was vulnerable to foreign power. The Royal Navy formed a blockade that threatened places like Charleston, Savannah, and New York City. As battles began, communities up and down the Atlantic coast, along the St. Lawrence Seaway, and down the Mississippi, anywhere accessible by water, were threatened. In August of 1814, the Brits burned half of Washington, D.C., including the White House. In September, Baltimore's Fort McHenry withstood 25 hours of bombardment from ships. The following morning, the fort's soldiers hoisted an enormous American flag, a sight that inspired Francis Scott Key to write the poem he called The Star-Spangled Banner. 
but British forces then left the Chesapeake Bay and headed to the Gulf in New Orleans, threatening one of our most valuable ports. My name is Kazmer Rosecki. Ranger Rosecki is a park guide, a history expert that helps people learn about the Gulf Islands National Seashore. When the War of 1812 came to an end, the United States would unfold a plan. They would devise a, a plan to strengthen that coastline, to ensure that in the years to come, nothing could be repeated like what had unfolded during the War of 1812. So uh, in 1816, a committee is formed uh, known as the Board for Coastal Fortifications. And this Board of Engineers, uh, as a part of the Army Corps of Engineers, they would assess the importance of different waterways up and down the Atlantic coast as the United States grew geographically. Uh, eventually, the Board of Engineers went on to survey the Gulf coastline. And in time, they even surveyed the Pacific coastline, uh, at least those areas that fell within the jurisdiction of the United States. This plan, known as the Third System of Coastal Fortifications, would run from about 1816 to 1867. And it would be the first time in U.S. history where a core group, the Corps of Engineers, would design and then build a system of permanent and durable fortifications. Those forts would run from what is now the state of Maine all the way down the Atlantic coast, across the Gulf Coast, and as far as Alcatraz Island in San Francisco in the west. A total of 42 forts were ultimately constructed as one part of a massive undertaking to protect our young and unfortified nation. One of the most important fortifications took place in the Panhandle of Florida, where the Pensacola Bay allowed for large Navy ships to enter a narrow channel into a safe harbor. The forts that would be built here on the bay, totaling four permanent structures, uh, would be designed to protect that channel called Pensacola Pass uh, and to protect a New Navy Yard, which was established by Congress in 1825. Uh, it's really the, the, the natural features of the bay and the presence of that Navy Yard that dictated how and where the Army Corps would fortify this area. So in 1829, four years after that Navy Yard had been authorized, uh, Fort Pickens, ground is broken on the western tip of Santa Rosa Island. And the fort is completed in a matter of five years. 1834 is when the superintending engineer writes to his superior saying Fort Pickens is now ready to be occupied if necessary by weapons, cannon, and soldiers. The placement of Fort Pickens on the western tip of Santa Rosa Island allowed for it to have a commanding presence on the northern Gulf Coast here, a ship a military ship sailing this way would be able to see this fort and know that the United States had gone to great lengths in order to protect that pass and everything that lay behind it. Fort Pickens, though, would just be one piece of the puzzle. Right after its completion, the Corps of Engineers, uh, with a workforce of enslaved African Americans, both working as general laborers and others as skilled artisans, would move to an area within this national park today called Perdido Key and build a smaller fort named Fort McCree. They too completed it in five years. 
And then they moved on to the mainland uh, on a, an area now occupied by what is known as the Naval Air Station Pensacola, uh, which is the birthplace of naval aviation and the home of the Blue Angels. Uh, there today, uh, you have Fort Barrancas and about a half mile to the north, a smaller masonry fort called Advanced Redoubt. These four forts were built to make sure our new Navy could be completely protected from a catastrophic attack. And it worked. They were incredibly well designed, nearly impossible to overrun, and an incoming warship would be simply cannon fodder for the hundreds of guns aimed at them. These forts would never play a part in any conflict with a foreign power, but this Navy stronghold in the South would become an important chess piece as our nation began to turn our guns toward each other. In November of 1860, Abraham Lincoln becomes president-elect. And that sets in motion a series of events that will encourage Southern slaveholding states to call for secession conventions and withdraw their relations from the Union. Uh, just a little bit over a month after Lincoln becomes president-elect, South Carolina pursues that course. They secede from the Union. Pensacola in 1860 is the largest town or city in the entire state of Florida. And located here on Pensacola Bay is that Navy Yard. Uh, here you had the Navy Yard, the four forts. Also, you had over 360 cannon. You had over 17,000 different types of projectiles and over 50,000 pounds of gunpowder. So there's a lot of valuable material, um, military supplies here, materials here. A small army unit called Company G, 1st United States Artillery, was stationed in Pensacola, numbering 47 men, along with the sailors and the Marines based in the area. The Union commander, present for duty, uh, a young man about 31, 32 years old from uh, near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, his name was Adam Slemmer. He, in the first few days of January, grew more and more alarmed by the calls for secession, but also the actions taken by state militia. On about January 3rd, he will receive reports that Alabama militia had taken over a U.S. arsenal where weapons were uh, stored. He also learns that state militia in Alabama had taken over sister forts of those here on Pensacola Bay, Fort Gaines and Fort Morgan on Mobile Bay. He also knows that because Pensacola is the largest community, it could, in theory, organize a rather large militia unit. So he will be in some contact with his superiors in Washington, D.C., and he will receive orders to protect what the Army, what the U.S. government has here on the Bay. Uh, but the reality of his situation forced him to take action. These massive forts didn't house troops. They stood empty until they were needed in battle. Seeing what was going on around him, Slemmer knew that Fort Pickens would become a crucial asset to the North and would be a safe haven for Northern men stationed in Pensacola. On January 8th, he begins the process of stocking Fort Pickens with supplies and munitions. Two days later, he finishes evacuating 80 men with Northern ties to the island fort. And on that same day, Florida votes to leave the Union. Two days after that, Florida and Alabama militia would take over the Naval Yard, the three other forts, and the Pensacola Lighthouse, 
creating a tense standoff that could, at any moment, kick off a war between the North and South, months before the first official shots are fired at Fort Sumter. Slemmer supplied his fort well, but water and food would still be needed, and the men were essentially surrounded. A truce was established between Adam Slemmer and William Chase, commander of the Florida militia. Chase supervised the building of Fort Pickens and knew it was so well constructed that taking it from Slemmer's 80 men would require a thousand troops. So Chase allowed food and supplies to move across the bay as long as no new troops were brought into Fort Pickens. One of Abraham Lincoln's first great challenges when he became president were the standoffs that were happening at Charleston and Pensacola. Both of these spots were burning embers that could explode at any moment. The Lincoln administration would take steps to provide for the relief of Fort Pickens. That expedition ran into a few challenges, and because of that, reinforcements and supplies were not landed outside Fort Pickens until the night and morning of April 12 and April 13 which is also the start of the Civil War. From that point on, you do have this buildup where the Union is reaffirming its hold in and around Fort Pickens. And you also have more men coming to Pensacola Harbor from neighboring Southern states. You'll see men coming from Louisiana, from Mississippi, from Alabama, here from Florida and also Georgia. In time, they will form what is known as the Army of Pensacola. The man who had been placed in command of the state militia, William Chase, eventually resigns from that role. And in early March 1861, still before the first shot is fired, you have a new officer, Confederate officer, a man named Braxton Bragg, who had been a West Point graduate. Um, he became a, a national hero because of his role in the Mexican-American War. And he is going to work to equip clothe and train new recruits, these citizen soldiers. He's going to work to improve the defenses running from the Navy Yard over to Fort Barrancas and onward to Fort McCree. Uh, meanwhile, you have a Union commander, uh, a man named Harvey Brown, come in. He'll take command of the Union presence out on the island. He, too, will make changes, some modifications to the guns inside Fort Pickens. Uh, keep in mind, this was a fort that had been designed to keep an outside, uh, a foreign force out of the nation. So he has to reorient some guns towards the mainland. He's also going to have his men build these temporary earthen uh, defenses called sand batteries so that he can install more cannon to force any potential Confederate firing on that fort to disperse their fire. Uh, it'll be a way for him to protect that brick structure. The summer months here in Pensacola Bay are relatively quiet, but that all changes in September when a group of U.S. sailors and Marines conduct a raid on a ship being outfitted as a military vessel in the Navy Yard. Uh, this will be in an event remembered as the Judah Affair. At 03.30, about 100 sailors and Marines from the USS Colorado boarded four of the ship's boats and rowed quietly across the harbor toward the schooner Judah. The Confederate vessel was moored to a wharf at the Navy Yard and had been under surveillance for several days. 
The ship had been fitted out with five guns, and it was firmly believed that she was going to slip out of the harbor and make a dash for privateer duty in the Gulf. To prevent the escape of the Judah, Lieutenant J.H. Russell devised a daring raid. The operation was comprised of two elements. To prevent the raiding party from being raked by fire from a nearby field piece, two cutters took 35 men to silence the gun. Following an unopposed landing, they found the gun guarded by a lone sentinel, who was shot down. The gun was disabled within 15 minutes. A third cutter and the ship's launch headed toward the Judah. As they approached the ship, they began taking fire from prepared Confederate sailors. A wild melee ensued on the deck as the two groups fought for control of the ship. The raiders won out, and while the remainder of the boarders engaged the men on the wharf, two raced into the bowels of the ship and set fires that would burn her to the waterline. Unable to control the blaze, the ship was cut loose from her moorings to prevent damage to the wharf. She drifted away and eventually sank opposite Fort Barrancas. This would be the first bloodshed in Florida in the Civil War, leaving three Federal troops dead and 13 wounded. The Confederate loss was unreported. On January 8th, Braxton Bragg would seek revenge for the sinking of the Judah. Upwards of 1,200 Confederate soldiers were transported from the Navy Yard to downtown Pensacola and then across the bay. And they landed on Santa Rosa Island about four miles east of the Union soldiers. Uh, they would form up into three columns and then begin their march over this barrier island, uh, which is incredibly difficult because these are new citizen soldiers. Uh, this will be, for many of them, the first battle that they're going to participate in. And the, the terrain out here, the geography of this island can be punishing uh, when you're trying to move over massive sand dunes and through wetlands and through a maritime forest. But they do this. And their ultimate goal, their objective is to destroy a camp outside of Fort Pickens, just about a mile away, that belonged to a group of Union soldiers from the state of New York, known as the 6th New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment. That Confederate attack will surprise the Union presence here. Uh, the Union soldiers will be forced out of that camp where they will be reinforced by U.S. regulars. Uh, and then they'll counterattack, and there will be this seesaw motion over this Camp Brown, as it was named, um, before eventually the Confederacy withdraws from the island and removes itself from this area. Both forces, though, will spin what is known today as the Battle of Santa Rosa Island as a victory. The Confederacy will see that they had accomplished their objective. They destroyed Camp Brown and they themselves withdrew. The Union would read it as they forced the Confederacy off of the island. Therefore, they held the battlefield at the end. Around 115 soldiers on both sides are either killed, wounded, or reported as missing in the Battle of Santa Rosa Island. A month later, the Union would now want revenge. At around 10 in the morning on November 22nd, a Union cannon inside Fort Pickens fires a shot to signal the beginning of two-day bombardment from the fort and two ships between the Pensacola Bay forts. Uh, this bombardment probably ranks as one of the largest of the war. At least 103 cannon would be used in that two-day fight. 
the most common type of weapon used was a gun called a 10-inch Columbiad, which fired a solid iron ball weighing about 128 pounds, and it could fire that upwards of a, a mile in distance. So these are big cannon uh, that are being employed here in this battle. And uh, there would be at least one soldier who reported that the battle could be heard as far away as Montgomery, Alabama, uh, over 100 miles away from here. Yet for the intensity and the severity of that battle, which would see two villages heavily damaged, uh, Woolsey and Warrington, uh, which surrounded the Navy Yard. Um, the Navy Yard, too, sustained uh, structural damage. Uh, only 44 Union and Confederate soldiers would be reported as casualties of war, uh, a small number for the intensity of that battle. But I think uh, a testament to the, the strength that these forts could protect two human beings. Uh, these events would not force generals elsewhere or politicians to have to make very important decisions that would sway the course of the war. But these events would test these new soldiers, some of who would go on to serve throughout the rest of the war. And it's also going to teach communities across the nation, the, the reality of this war. Uh, those men who fought and died here who didn't return, uh, their loss would be quickly felt by their families, by their communities, um, and would serve as a reminder of the reality of warfare. The Confederacy evacuates Pensacola by May of 1862 due to losses further north and the need to reinforce strongholds. On January 1st of 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect, aligning the Union war effort toward the destruction of slavery. It also allowed the government to recruit units of black men into the Army and Navy. It also allowed the government to recruit units of black men into the Army and Navy. One of these units, the 25th United States Colored Troops, is organized near Philadelphia, led by white officers and sent to Pensacola Bay in the summer of 1864. They fill down here what is essentially this support role, this auxiliary role, where they are freeing up white soldiers to go and play a more active role on the front lines. And this is in part because of white biases, biases uh, held by union officers and union uh, northern politicians. They, they did not think that the African-American could learn to be a soldier and used to be a soldier. So they would be placed in forts like those here in Pensacola Bay. But they will prove themselves worthy of filling combat roles. Uh, the 25th uh, does not engage in any great battles of the Civil War, but nonetheless, they fulfill their mission. Uh, they train and they drill here on Pensacola Bay and ultimately become a, a part of those 180 or 1,000 or so African-Americans who contribute to the Union war effort and help secure victory in 1865. So here in Pensacola Bay, you do see a Union presence throughout 1865, all in an effort to hold this area, um, to keep it as a staging ground for other campaigns that will take place on the Gulf Coast. The Civil War would render Fort Pickens and its sister forts all along the coast obsolete due to emerging technologies. You have the rise of steel-hulled warships. Uh, you have the rise of rifled 
cannon, which can fire at greater ranges uh, with much more accuracy. Uh, and you also, in time, will see cannon not being manufactured out of cast iron, but rather steel. And whether you have walls made out of granite or brick and mortar, those walls will crumble um, under those technologies. About 1894, the Corps of Engineers, they come back to Pensacola Bay um, and they do a new assessment of the harbor defenses. And that's when they find here that the weapons here, the, the, the structures here cannot play a, a role in this harbor's defense system. So you have a series of reinforced concrete structures built, uh, protected by sod. Um, and they're given what were then modern weapons, uh, cannon that were rifled, manufactured out of steel that could fire a few miles out into the Gulf of Mexico with great accuracy. Uh, in time, they would also become obsolete. Uh, during World War II, uh, fighter jets came onto the scene. So technology just continued to emerge and changed warfare at that time. Today, our nation is protected by a variety of ocean warfare ships, fighter jets, submarines, long-range missiles, satellites, drones, and of course, our nuclear arsenal. Coastal forts are a reminder of a different era. This park is unique in that it has these heavy footprints. You have these natural resources, you have the biodiversity of the region, but then you also have the incredible recreational opportunities. You have boating, you have snorkeling, scuba diving, you have fishing, uh, you have beach combing, and then you also have one of the finest collections of coastal defenses in the nation managed by the Park Service here. It's a place where you can be surprised. It's a place where you may not have expectations um, and will have those expectations change or grow during your time here. Um, so there's just so much to offer and that's to be seen as a, a mark of beauty on this park, I think. Fort Pickens is located on the western end of Santa Rosa Island. You pay a dollar toll to cross a bridge that leads you onto the island in the resort community of Pensacola Beach, and then drive west into the park. When you cross the gates, the thousands of partying tourists thin out, and you can enjoy pristine white sand beaches on both the gulf and bay sides of the long, thin island. On your way down the park road, you'll see gun batteries from different eras, until you reach the massive fort at the end, constructed from 21.5 million bricks. Take a self-guided tour or join one of the free ranger-guided tours. Rangers dressed as Civil War soldiers perform cannon and rifle demonstrations, while the U.S. Navy Blue Angels 
often fly overhead as a striking reminder of the changes in warfare over the centuries. They're stationed across the bay at the still active naval base, now known as Naval Air Station Pensacola. On the base is Fort Barrancas and the Vance Redoubt, as well as the Free National Naval Aviation Museum, one of the best museums I've ever visited. You can camp in an RV or a tent right on the island at one of the best national park campgrounds in the system. And don't forget to visit the other area. You can camp in an RV or a tent right on the island at one of the best national park campgrounds in the system. And don't forget to visit the other areas of the Gulf Islands National Seashore, such as the Davis Bayou area, Fort Massachusetts on Ship Island, and the Naval Live Oaks Preserve. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and I'd like to thank Ranger Kazmer Rosecki for joining me today. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. We'll link to all of our social media, as well as National Park Service resources, music credits, and more in the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and I as we travel the country in our converted school bus with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Today's show was sponsored by LL Bean. Follow the hashtag Be an Outsider and visit llbean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks.